What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is screenwriter Bob Sines. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. It's great to be here. I'm excited about doing the five-minute thing with you. Indeed, indeed. We're going to do five great screenwriting tips, pointers, and they're pertaining to your book, that, that's not the way it works. And no do, I to, do I get to hold it up now? You can hold it up for me. I mean, for the listener, they're only going to get the audio. Oh, uh, that's right. The <laughs> listener. I'm holding up my book, folks. <laughs> book klaxon, book klaxon. Uh, a no-nonsense guide to screenwriting. So um, you as a screenwriter, um, and obviously in the intro, you point out there are, what, 20 pages of uh, screenwriting books on Amazon where you, you, you are identified? Something about something like that. Yeah, there are tons of tons and tons of. Uh, so what? So, so what was it for you that made you thought of it? I'm going to need some muscle in and uh, tell people how it really is. Well, one of the things is is that I have 18 produced films. Mm. That and and so I'm I get to do. I I decided I would write it from my experience. Mm-hmm. That write it from what I've experienced and and what I've learned and what I've learned on the job. And I thought that was an important thing because I don't think there's a whole lot of books that do that. But it's the second half of the book that most people have been really excited about and that I think it's the only one out there that talks about how to be in business as a screenwriter, how you operate your business as a screenwriter, what what it's like after you write the script. Mm. And the whole second half of the book is what do I do after I write the script? What are the what what kind of meetings do I get to go to? What kind of thing? If you get to that point, where what are the meetings? How do I operate in those meetings? Um, how how does how do credits work? How do I mean? It's just a whole long list of things. No, no, and and that you're right. That is that is because because often most of the books, as you kind of point out in different places, are not often written by people who have successfully written screenplays that have got produced. 
So they end up being a bunch of rules, they end up being a bunch of guidelines, but they aren't practical, like you say, in terms of what happens next. I mean, I I, I, I used a lot of podcast interviews and things like that to, to teach me about the elements of what happens after you've written a screenplay, because you can spend ages learning to write to write the things and write as many as you want, but if you don't know what to do with it after, it's it's now useless, isn't it? It, it's, it is, and but I, I made every I, I made every mistake in the world. <laughs> I mean, I just I mean I I I had to teach myself what I had to do because you know I could I I didn't live in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I lived I lived in California, but I lived in the the Bay Area. Now I had an advantage because I was an actor, and I had I've been in Screen Actors Guild for twenty five years. Mm-hmm. And I have had tiny, teeny, and you, you, they can't hear, they can't see me, but I'm holding my fingers up very, not very far apart. I had tiny, teeny parts in a lot of good movies. I was on a television show uh, for six seasons with a tiny, teeny role that was recurring. And, and I was able to learn about how things worked. And I paid attention and I watched and I learned and I asked questions and that helped me as a screenwriter too. And I, while I was on the television show, which was a show called Nash Bridges, which starred um, Don Johnson um, and Cheech Marin from Cheech and Chong, mm. um, that that I learned. I saw the scripts and thought I can do that, and found out I was a better screenwriter than I was an actor, and uh, just went on from there and 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 used the contacts that I'd made as an actor to network. Um, but not, not before I had written what I thought were scripts that somebody would want to see. Now, just, just let me, for, for, you have actually have a section in your book called the acting screenwriter in reference yes. to this. And I, I picked out a quote from it acting in front of the camera with a hundred people standing around waiting for lunch is even harder, but I don't know a writer who wouldn't grow from that experience, gain insight. It's one. It's one more building block in your career, which I thought is a really interesting view of it. I mean, I know I've I've certainly been encouraged to do it. I've do, I've done extra work, nothing nothing long running. My only claim to fame is passing Rob Delaney a cigarette in a cafe scene in East London, <laughs> in the in the in the sitcom uh, catastrophe. But uh, and yeah, I'm, but look at it this way: you, at least you didn't. It wasn't just your shoulder. Oh I no. Mean, how many? I mean, I when I started off, I started off as an extra, hmm. and and. And I did extra work in in a lot of stuff, and and I it was it was a great education because I had no idea how films really got made, mm. and I got to see. And it was again, I encourage every writer to go just do do it once mm. at least because you're going to get to see things that you didn't realize how it worked. I mean, well, how much did you learn that when you did that? Well, I, well, the bigger one was I worked on the film Tarzan, the uh, David Yates, uh, the recent re- of that. I played a, a Belgian mercenary. Now, you'll never see me in the film. I mean, there's hundreds of us in the film that never got anywhere near the camera. But I remember play. I had to, we had to play dead for one scene on a hill. And yeah. David Yates, the director, was stood about a foot from my head. Oh, I love David Yates. <laughs> talking to Samuel Jackson about what they're going to do next. And it was really fascinating to hear David Yates say, so Samuel, what do you think you need to do here? So it wasn't an instruction, like a direction. It was more of a direct collaboration, you know. But then the bigger lesson I learned is all the long shots, the star is nowhere near the set. It was all doubles. That was a big lesson on set that 
you know, Christoph Waltz, Samuel Jackson, Alexander Skarsgård, they're only on set for any medium or close-ups. If it's if it's a scene walking down a hill and it's, you know, in long shot, that's just a double. And I was like, this is blowing me out of the water. They're cheating me. Yeah. I'm getting cheated. Yeah, no, no, no. It's 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 amazing. And and there'll be scenes where I know that where where they did over the shoulder shots uh on stuff and it was doubles. Hmm. That that you you know, because it's from the back you can't really tell, and and you know it it gets it get you know it's it's just I remember we did a we did a scene in uh, Nash Bridges where there was supposed to be a leak in the roof, and it was on a it was in a basically in a sound stage, hmm. and they hung coffee cans and poked holes ah. in the bottom of them to have water drip down small holes to have water drip down. And that's where the, and that was their high tech special effects. Yeah. I, well, yeah, on Tarzan, I watched, I watched a bunch of grips and uh, sort of crew wrestle with some scaffolding and a camera uh, clamp, put it on a quad yeah. bike. Yeah. And then weigh it down with car batteries. So the, so the, they tampered down the, the uh, suspension and then did running scenes with Alexander Skarsgård so they could get the motion without having to set up a dolly train and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and it was like, you've gone to all the effort. And it was when they started strapping on car batteries, I was like, this is like playing. This isn't working. Oh, no. I mean, I was, where was I? I was in, I, I did a movie and I can't remember what it was, but they put the cameraman with the steady cam in a wheelchair. <laughs> and they rolled him around where they couldn't get tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, how cool is this? And I mean, it was just a regular old wheelchair. Mm. And I thought, you watch all this stuff and you figure, and then I watch, I've watched other movies where I went, and I hate to do that because I watch movies to enjoy them. I try mm. not to, to, to pick them apart. But then every mm. once in a while, I'll watch a movie and I'll go, where did they put that camera? <laughs> totally, totally. I mean, I was, I, funny enough, I did that last night. I was watching uh, the film Beckett with Denzel Washington's son in it. it was on Netflix and and it was really interesting the choices of where cameras were for to make it you know to make small interior real world non-studio shots interesting yeah. there was these kind of every time you went inside a room it almost like the angle completely flipped from the normal relaxed usual view you got outside yeah to make it interesting because obviously small rooms are not really always that interesting no if, if, they're, not. if they're not studio spaces because they've got ceilings and the like I, I have I have a couple of friends. Um, I, have, I have I have many cinematographer friends. Mm. I have I have a couple of good friends that are the some of the top camera operators in, in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And and I've I've, ha I've gotten a chance to watch a couple of them work. And those guys are artists. They are artists with a camera. They can do things with cameras that you can't even believe. Mm. You know, I watched them lie on the ground swing the camera around so it they're shooting from one side and then to the other so you get that great shot like you know panoramic yeah yeah like yeah and then they're just lying on the ground with you know two guys holding them down so they can <laughs> well it's that idea that that's the solution to a director saying what i want is this this and this and, yeah. the, and the cinematographer and the camera people go okay this is what we can do then and you and like you say it can just end up being somebody lay on the floor i was fortunate yeah. enough to um to have uh, Larry Smith on the podcast, who was uh, Stanley Kubrick's DOP 
on, on Eyes Wide Shut, but he'd also worked as a consultant with Kubrick ever since Barry Lyndon. So it's like he'd worked on The Shining and on all kinds. So, and it was just wow. fascinating. And he, because he, I don't know what you know about Barry Lyndon, but famously, you know, Kubrick's dogma was, I want natural light or candlelight yeah. because that's yeah. what it would have been at the time. Yeah. So they had to use, the only lenses you could use were from NASA. So he was involved with testing NASA lenses because that was the only lens that could pick up so, such low light. In Well, uh, yeah, and pick up candlelight. I know yeah. I read a story about that and I thought, Kubrick was just, I mean, that, what a, what a, yeah, he was something else. Yeah, well, because well, Larry, Larry had been working with Nicholas Wine and Refn. He did, uh, he did a couple of his films. The most recent one would have been Only God Forgives, which there's a lot of comparisons with Kubrick's films and 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 uh, and Wine and Refn, like as in he's ripping them off. But it's like, well, if you think the cinematographer is the same person, that's kind of like using a skill that's available to you. Like, here's a, here's a tool set that's available. Larry Smith. Oh, I've I've worked on I've worked on I've gotten to I've been very fortunate I got to know Hiro Narita, <laughs> the cinematographer, wow. and 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 Hiro Narita is a great guy. I mean he's just he's he's retired now and and but but I worked on um, and he's just a top but he'll do any he 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 just loves to do what he does, and I worked on on the movie um, the Milk with Sean Penn. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, and and I played a um, a uh, unfortunate. Well, I played a a riot cop, and uh, so uh, I do get to bump into Sean Penn at one point um, <laughs> violently. But but uh, I was out there, and they were filming this gigantic scene where they're having this candlelight march and all this stuff. And they had and and they had it all set up, and I'm watching this like fourth or fifth cameraman standing over on the side. And I look and I look and I look and it's Hiro Narita. And he's just, I said, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I, I didn't have anything to do. And they called and they said, would you like to be a cameraman on this one scene? So I said, okay. Wow. And, and, and this is the kind of, but this is your average, great, spectacular cinematographer. I'm in Zodiac. And, uh, and uh, and that was shot by Harris Savides, okay. the late Harris Savides, and and he actually operated camera in the scene I was in, and I I just it was just I had a chance while everything was being set up and everything, and he was sitting there because the camera was like six inches from my face at mm. one point, and I said, and so I got a chance to say, you know, you know, we we know some people. We know some other cinematographers. I know some other cinematographers that you know that are friends. And I said, but I just have so much respect for you. And we had a really long talk about about film versus uh, versus digital. Oh, wow. And he, and, and he hated, hated digital. He just wanted, he still wanted to shoot film, even though he was shooting Zodiac on digital. I said, do you like it? And he goes, I hate it. Larry Smith speculated that, that um, he thought that Kubrick would have hated Digital. Did he really? Yeah, he, he thought he would. He said he said he'd use it. He said, but he know he said that it's the um, for him it was the it's the organic quality of film and the unpredictability. So you get to make the prediction yourself. You get to engineer it. Whereas digital is a ones and zeros reproduction of of what light does to ones and zeros, not what light does to chemicals. And yeah, 
and 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 that's part of what Harris Savides was talking about. But but F- David Fincher, who who directed Zodiac, which well, that was a fascinating thing. And yes, David Fincher does do Take Seventy Five. Does he? So, yeah, <laughs> we did the. I did one scene um, that I'm in uh, that uh, uh, that Jake uh, Gyllenhaal is in, mm. and uh, we got to about seventy three or something. And he walked, it's where he bangs his hand on the cab. Mm. I, I screech the cab to a halt when he's running across the street. And he bangs his hand on the cab. And then that's when the focus of the film turns from him to me. And and I'm the cab, I'm a cab driver. And and he bangs his hand and runs across the street. Well, after about take 74 of that, <laughs> him <laughs> running across the street and me screeching to a halt because... Fincher wanted the light to be perfect or something. He walked up to the cab window and knocked on the window and I rolled it down and he said, do you want to do this again? (laughs) (laughs) I said, not particularly. (laughs) And he went over to, uh, he went over to, uh, to uh, David Fincher and goes one more. (laughs) I will do he said, "He said, actually, I think he said we will do one more." <laughs> <laughs> well, look, sir. Let's. Um, I'll just explain for the for the first time listener coming along. The five times five rule is very simple. It is. It is. Bob has given me five headings to work from. I will announce each one as we go, and there is a there is a timer that I'll be keeping an eye on. Well, I'll be letting fly, and every time we reach the end of five minutes, we will hear a dog bark. Which signals the end. Now, see what you did. You no, my dog no. Stop it. <laughs> come here. Come here. Stop it. Okay. That was a very me- that was a very meta moment. <laughs> that was huh? That was a meta moment. I liked it. A virtual dog in London and <laughs> a real <laughs> dog down the end of the Zoom call. Fantastic. <laughs> Starting okay. the clock off. The right. first item on your list pertaining to your book, uh, That's Not the Way It Works, A No-Nonsense Guide to Screenwriting. Rejection isn't personal. Absolutely not. Rejection, you know, a, a screenwriter gets, first of all, the reason the book is called that is because I got tired of saying that to people when they talked about all kinds of things, and including rejection. Mm. Um, and how they were they were just it just killed them because it was it was so nasty and so awful and all this stuff and I, I kept saying that's not the way it works listen when when you get a rejection on your script for whatever reason and every writer gets rejected all the time mm. I get rejections I got a couple in the last two weeks that I was not happy with but they happen and and it's an it's a no and and you live with it because everybody else is getting rejections too it's it, when somebody says yes it's a rarity so getting hundreds of rejections is not unusual now now you revealing this in your book is counterproductive to the usual dream uh dream academy that most screenwriting books are selling so why did you want to puncture this bubble because I want people to realize the truth and not mm. get hurt by not get realized that, that, that get surprised and, and upset with the people who tell them it's so easy. Mm. Um, 
you can sell books by telling people it's easy, but they're going to use that book for a doorstop when they realize that you haven't told them the truth. Mm. Uh, the, the, when you get rejected, they reject you for many, many reasons. They, you can get rejected because the script is bad. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, 98% of all scripts are bad. And what you want to be is in that 2%. You can get rejected because it's not the right genre that they're looking for because you didn't do your homework and send them to the right producers. You don't send a horror script to somebody who produces Christmas movies. And yet it happens all the time. Third, you can get rejected because they have something similar already in the, in the, uh, in their queue. Mm. And that happens. And, and because there's no original stories anywhere, just the way that you put your own spin on it. And that can be exciting and fun. But if they've got something that's similar to it, or you can have something rejected because it's too expensive and they can't afford to make it because they have a certain amount of money that they want to spend on a film. So there's a budget problem. Mm. I mean, I can go down a list of. Well, I, was, I mean, I'm just, I was trying to think of my last rejection and it was, it was really straightforward. It was just, thank you for giving us your script. We're going to pass. There was no explanation. There was no rhyme or reason, but it was like they'd requested it. And, and then they said, no, not for us. Now, like you say, there's a, it could be terrible. It could be similar to what they've got. It could be whatever, but they don't, what I was getting at there hopefully is there's no reason for them to give you any more explanation than I've passed. It's just like you have no more reason to give anybody else an explanation for things. Anyway, I can't be there at your party next week. It doesn't work for me. You don't have to tell them that, you know, your dog needs to be dewormed or something. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 you, it's the same thing. No, we've said no. Hmm. But the thing that writers need to realize is they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the words on the page. It's not a personal slight to you as a human being. They're not, they don't think enough of you to do that. Hmm. They don't have that. They're not, they don't want to get to know you until they like something you write and are interested in. That's when they start to think, hey, maybe we should get to know this person because once you once you option a script of them, they are interested in knowing who you are. They are interested in knowing whether they can work with you, whether you're going to be a cooperative writer, whether you're going to understand how films get made. It's interesting, isn't it? How how the perception is that 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 you're going to somehow break a ceiling that nobody's broken before because you've written the script that nobody's written. There's like this, this naive belief that you've somehow found a new secret that thousands of other screenplays that have gone before you. And yet you wrote a script about uh, a, um, a DEA agent whose family gets killed and you're going on a revenge, which is pretty much every Steven Seagal movie of the 1980, <laughs> late 1980s. There's our there's our first uh, first five minutes up. That was a quick five minutes. The next the next one on your on the list is before you write, you need to have something good to write about. What what are you what do you mean by that? I mean that why waste your time spending as much time as it takes to write a great script, and it takes time and craft. Why waste it writing something? that isn't going to sell because of what you're writing about. And I'd like I said earlier, the DEA agent 
whose family gets killed and you go on a revenge thing. It's been done to death. And and when is the last time you saw a movie like that? I mean, I'm going to say in your in your in your book, which it, there's a chapter called "Choosing Your Story and Premise." I picked out a little quote, which is one of the worst pieces of advice I hear given to screenwriters: "Is write only what you know." And then you added to that: great writers don't write what they know; they know what they write. And it's the truth. If if you want to write about a subject, do the research, figure it out. And then write about it. You have to base everything in reality to make stuff up about it. Mm. If you want to write about hospitals, find out about hospitals. If you want to write, I, the, the worst, you know, register how hard it is to become a registered nurse, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. In one script I read not too long ago, there was a <laughs> there was a registered nurse who was only there because she was doing. Um, she was doing community service for being arrested for being a hooker. <laughs> and I said to the writer, have you ever been in a hospital? And he said, but it's a movie. And that's when I said, have a great life. Wow. I can't help you. Um, um, the, 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 Oh, this is a lot of writers and, and it's, and it's only because they think screenwriting is easy. And you and I both know it's not. So what, what for you is a good way to screw, say you've got your basic idea. What for you is a good way to scrutinize an idea to sort of test its validity to go and make, uh, write think, a movie? I, uh, first of all, look and see if there's anything like it. Okay. And then ask yourself a lot of what ifs about it. What if I did this? What if I did this? What if I did this that's different? Hmm. Um, give you a quick thing. I have a friend of mine who's uh, I haven't seen in a while, his wife did the 23andMe thing. And she found out all about her history. Then she looked up people who had the same DNA as her so she could see her relatives were on there and found out her father had done a little extracurricular activity. And then she had a brother she did not know about. Wow. Yes. And he's telling me about this and my mind is going bang, 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 bang. And, and, And then he says, so... By chance, they're having a family reunion, like within three or four months of this. And they, she says, she talked to her family and they invited him. And she had talked to him and he didn't have any family and he didn't really know anybody and was really kind of alone. So they invited him and everybody fell in love with him. And he was a great guy and he's now part of their family. So I'm listening to this and inside my head is. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com try. Go to shopify.com try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com try. 
It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. What if he was a serial killer? Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, you were. <laughs> what What if he was a sociopath? Yeah, yeah. What yeah. if he was a stalker? And and all these things are banging around in my head. And these are the kinds of things that make for a good premise for a movie. I just gave away a good premise, didn't I? But but make make these are the kinds of things you need to be thinking about. These are the kinds of things you need to look at. What can I take? that's been done or what can I take that's out there mm. that, mm. that I can put my own spin on it? You know, you, ter- you hear about tropes mm. and you hear about uh, tropes for genres and stuff, you know, and, and people say, well, you have to have those. Well, you don't. But the thing is, where did they come from? And they came from somebody doing it for the first time. You don't want to set trends. You don't want to follow trends. You want to set them. Mm. That's how you do it by taking something and twisting it and turning it before you decide to write about it. Because then you can come up with stuff that's really interesting and different. Do you and, do you use other people as a, as a sounding board for when you're developing oh, your ideas? Oh, yeah, sometimes. I absolutely do. I have a, I have a, uh, a group of like 10 writers, Yeah, uh, 12 writers, and some of them are very well-known writers, mm-hmm. that we all send each other our scripts when we're, we've got like third drafts of them to see what they think. And we all tell each other the truth. This is great. This is net lousy. This is, I just read from one of them. Go on, finish your sentence. I just read from one of them, the best AI script I have ever read in my life. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure that it's going to be a film. And this is guy, this is a guy who had a hit film two years ago. Yeah. Oh, well I've got, I'm, I've, I've been fighting with an AI script for probably three years now. I, I got. I fell down a rabbit hole. I discovered a podcast called RoboPsych, which is the ethics of AI, not not the not yeah. the technology. Oh, I listen. Send me the link to that. I'd love to listen to that. And it's a it's a Harvard professor talking to people about basically should we do this? Like that's the not that's not, the whole not Michael the whole Michael Crichton thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like should we? Should, and it's and it and it's got me into think. It's got me thinking about stuff that before AI was like. Oh, it'll just replace what we do, or it'll just do a thing that we don't like doing. And then you go, but machine code learning is something it self-teaches. And and then I heard one of the ones he said there was somebody had, in, had, in, had invented a staffless passport control. So it was basically a camera that, that would look in your face and it would go, he's lying or he's not lying. And the chief executive was boasting that it was 80% successful. And I'm thinking, that's twenty percent failure. That's yeah. <laughs> and, and you get anything else that's a twenty percent failure, and it doesn't go anywhere. Can you imagine coming off a plane to a staffless, you know, a staffless customs in the future, and it's going boop boop, and like going back to your kind of what if a serial killer gets through? You kind of you know, it's like you just add in that what if, not <laughs> not what if the jet, not if the Henson Hendersons are gone on holiday. What if the person going through that customs? blinks his eye and gets through, but he's a sociopath. And you're like, suddenly you've just yeah. let, 
or 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 is a perfectly innocent human being and gets caught up in a Hitchcock type thing because the twenty percent was wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You suddenly get pulled one side and you're north by northwest before you. Uh, number three, then, okay. is you can get an option from a query letter, but you have to know how to write one. Come on, give us the secret, Bob. Okay, here's what happened. Here's here's the thing that I have a friend who who was unrepresented, did not have a rep. Right. Okay. I've 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 optioned a lot of I optioned a lot of scripts mm-hmm. before I was ever represented by a manager or agent. Mm-hmm. I did it through networking because I was an actor before and I was like barely successful, but was on enough great sets to, to be able to, to, to meet with people. Yeah. Become friends. Uh, that's the secret. Um, but my friend Chuck has had four movies made three that end up in theaters from just query letters to producers. Wow. Yep. And the reason is he's the king of being able to do the right kind of query letter. I, in my book, I talk about the query letters and I give a lot of example. I give examples of what you should do. Mm. But the basic rule of thumb on a query letter is if it takes more than 25 seconds for the reader to read your query letter, you're not going to go anywhere. They don't want a tome. They don't want a full page. They want, hi, here's my name. Hi, I, I know who you are. This script is right in your wheelhouse. Here's the log line. Can I send it to you? That's it. 25 seconds. And I've had people that come back to me who have have never had had success with query letters who send me now notes, uh, either emails or Facebook notes or whatever, who come back and say, I copied what you did in your book. And for the first time in my life, I'm getting script requests. And you're right. They don't read them if they're longer than than three than twenty five seconds to read, and I said, it, I, I, they get hundreds of these, and they want to be able to go through them quickly. And if they can't, if your whole thing is, hi, this is your next Oscar winner, and mm. I, here's the reason that I wrote this. You know, I was, I was, you know, I was, uh, I was on the island of Malta, and you know, here's all the things that happened, and all that. And by the time they get three sentences into all that before you even talk about a log line, they're going next. So you want to be able to have a query letter that reads really swiftly, but you want to have a great log line. Okay. Here's my other thing. Don't write your log line until after you finish your script. Okay. Okay. Because you're never going to have exactly what it's going to be until that script is done and you realize what it is and you have a better understanding of what your story is and how it's how it's constructed, then you can write a log line. But trying to write a log line before you write a script is kind of like drawing a map to where you haven't buried the treasure yet. It's it's and it's and it is a struggle. It is a struggle though, once you've written that script to sort of go, here's 95 pages. Can I get it into 25 words? And- oh, it doesn't have to be 25 words. That's a that is a that is an urban myth. Okay. You can have a 40-word query letter that's two sentences. They don't care. Do you actually think the producers count the words? That's, I mean, that that 25-word thing that I've heard over and over and over and over. I, I've had I've asked producers, I had one guy say, Do you think they think we count the words? If we're interested in it, 
We can read 40 words and two sentences and still ask for the script. I must admit, the first time I wrote one with two sentences, I felt like I was crossing the line. And you weren't. <laughs> no, I know, I know. But it was it was just funny the first time I did it. It was like, oh, I've, I've broken a logline rule. <laughs> oh, no, there are no rules. There's no rules. Come on. I mean, I, every time somebody keeps telling me about all these rules, I keep asking them for, could you show me the official rule book, please? Yeah. And no, they go, Wait, what? I said, do you know Hollywood doesn't exist, right? <laughs> It, as, a, as an entity, it does not exist. There are a bunch of independent producers, production companies, studios who couldn't decide together to do anything, order lunch, let alone, let alone decide on rules. The screenwriting podcast, Script Notes, Craig Mazan is forever repeating the mantra, there are no rules. Craig Mazan and I are in complete agreement on that. The only rule is, is format and grammar and spelling are part of format. Here's a controversial one, I think, on our list of five. Screenwriting is a craft, not an art. It can be an art. <laughs> when this film is done and it's good, it can be. But it is a craft. It is absolutely a craft. Producers, it's a business, first of all. Mm. The, when anybody decides to option or buy your script or hire you to rewrite or do whatever happens as, for you as a writer, yeah, okay, that is not an artist's decision. That is a business decision. And it's a 100% business decision. 100%. And then they expect you to use your imagination, your creativity, and your understanding of the craft of screenwriting. Mm. My definition of screenwriting is to be able to tell a good story with layers of, of stuff that you have to have for a good story and, and great characterization and characters and character building in the least words possible. What I'd like to add to that is something I heard recently, actually, was, was you're providing the instructions to a load of other people to bring that story to life. And if yep. the words on the page don't do that, then you've kind of failed. And, 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 and what, 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 so it's a craft. It's a craft. You have to be able to craft a script that, that the first person that ever sees your script after somebody requests it mm. is, is a, called, they're called a reader which means you have to write your script to be read, but you have to write it in a way so that the person who's reading it sees it in their head as they read it as a film in what I call mind theater. Well, actually, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the truth. My friend Jim Kalurgis, who's a great writer, yeah. gave me that term one time, and I said, I'm stealing it. Uh, can, can, I yeah. st can I steal it for England then? Can I? Uh... Yes, you sure can. <laughs> I like you it. Can. But 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 what I call mind theater, and and when you when I say in the least words possible, I mean you're not the costume designer, you're not the you're not the uh, you're not the set designer, you're not all those things. Your job is to tell the story, and if you tell it well enough, or even describe, I don't even describe my characters unless something about them physically is a plot point. Hmm. I never even describe my characters except to give them an age range. But 
the thing is, if you do it well, and if you craft your script well, that reader will fill all that stuff in their head mm. with the picture that they see. So what you're doing is you're making that read personal to that reader. And once you make it personal to that reader and they want to keep reading, they're going to like it because they're going to see things that they like. Totally. Because they've put themselves into it. I think the important thing there that, that you've said, which which I think uh, weirdly, uh, given given that screenwriters write, is making a screenplay readable. It's sort of, it's because you can make, you can end up making it nonsense, can't you? You could just write very oblique sentences that don't really run into each other. Whereas you want the flow to flow like the action of the movie or it, the drama it, in the scene. It needs to be eminently readable. And that's what I think people don't understand. A lot of screenwriters don't understand that the first the first people that see it are readers, which is which is why the, the I've heard well you don't write direction, you know, don't write too much uh, direction for the characters because the actors will get offended. And I always say, what actors? There aren't any actors. No actors exist in this script. Well, you might offend a director if you you know if you do this. And I thought, what director? There is no director. There's no director that exists. Hmm. And they say, well, if you if there's a if there's a fight, you can write they fight because the stunt coordinator will figure out the rest of it. And my thing is, what stunt coordinator? There isn't a stunt coordinator. And if you just write they fight, there never will be. What you want to write is what you want seen on screen to advance the story. Yeah, that's that. That's quite that's sound beyond sound because yeah, there's there's a mistake you can make to be too brief with it, which is sort of giving Absolutely. up giving up responsibility for what what fun you could have with like say a fight scene, for example. And and I do. I mean, you don't have to go. You don't have to go into great depth. Got you have to go into great depth, but but that's why it's a craft and not an art because you have to really learn how to how to how to that fine line that you have to walk to have the reader be able to see a real film in front of them, but they can fill out the stuff that you you have to leave out. And they will. If it's a good story, they will fill in those holes. We've got the final one. And I just want, I picked another, I picked another quote out from your book, which is screenwriting isn't a zero sum game. If one person succeeds, that doesn't mean someone else fails. I love that. I, by the way, I love that notion. There is room for anyone to succeed just write an amazing script. Problem is, as you point out, Bob, that's not easy to do and it's kind of rare, as you put, honestly. And But your final that, that leads me into your final point, which is don't give up. Don't give up. We're going to, you and I are going to talk about this at a later date, I hope. Mm -hmm. But this, there's a poster behind me for a movie called Extracurricular Activity You Can't See. From the time that I wrote it, to the time that it got made was 18 years. It was a, it is still continues to be a movie that gets watched all the time on Amazon Prime all over the world. Mm. Very, very pleased. I bet. Uh, um, uh, but it took 18 years. And, and what I didn't, when I wrote my first script um, to the first one that I ever got, when I, from the time I wrote my first script, to the time that I wrote that I had my first produced film was 12 years. And 
I, the, the average is about a decade. It's about 10 years mm. of hard work for most every writer. If you talk to super successful writers, they will tell you that it took them 10 years. And everybody thinks, oh, this guy was an overnight success. Um, Eric Heiser wrote Arrival 10 years before it got made. Yeah, there's a brilliant interview with Brian Koppelman about that. And it's just, it is it is that don't give up in a nutshell, isn't it? Like your extra Yeah. The, 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 this isn't an easy road. This is a very difficult road because it's not easy to write a great script. It's very difficult to write a great script. You have to keep learning and writing and learning and writing. And some some people it takes five scripts, some people it takes three, some te- people it takes eight or ten. Mm. It just depends on your learning curve and your natural ability as a storyteller. Um, you know that the, the thing about it is is that, and I'll say this, and I've said it in the book a lot. I keep saying it in the book because I want people to realize this is the truth. Producers buy story; mm. they don't buy anything else, and and. They want a great story, and then they can develop that script from there. But but you have to have a story. You can't just have a series of scenes, and you can't just have an idea. It has to be a coherent story that goes from one point to another point where it's exciting between, mm. or interesting, or compelling, or dramatic, or scary, or funny. But it has to be a story. And the great, the great screenwriters, if you talk to them or, or see them or, or, or learn about them, are, are great storytellers. My favorite, I have two favorite screenwriters. My favorite screenwriter right now is Billy Ray. And Billy Ray is the number one go-to screenwriter in Hollywood. He gets $350,000 a week Wow, to fix scripts. But he also wrote two of my favorite movies, one called Shattered Glass and one called Breach. You could look at both of them and be amazed at how okay. fabulous. But he's an incredible writer and a great storyteller. Uh, William Goldman was a great storyteller. Um, you'll find that all the really good screenwriters are great storytellers, and that's what you have to. You kind of have to. If you if it's not innate, if it isn't natural to you, I've met a couple of people that they're just natural storytellers. If they were cavemen. They would have been the ones pointing to the cave paintings and telling all these great stories. The the there there's there are people with a natural ability to tell stories, and there are people that aren't, but have become good screenwriters because they have learned how to tell a story. But it it is all storytelling. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. when you get away from that and get into the formula stuff from some books, or you get into other stuff that you did some of the minutia. Of of screenwriting that you hear all these rules and all this stuff that will all drag you down and keep you away from the storytelling you need to do and how you get there is not giving up. My last four or five years, Bob, have been discovering that minutiae was what was what was after after battle was you were di- I was distracted by this idea there was a quick route to a screenplay and that the plot was going to somehow save me life. And then I then I got into the habit of sort of free form creative writing, where I just do it regularly, where I just play with ideas and stories and characters emerge. So there was no plot. There was no, just like, but but it began to mushroom into something, and it had nothing to do with formatting or where Act Three started or what page in this. 
And I do, there is a lot of misguided advice, which is somehow geared towards making it seem like it's easy, but actually coming up with ideas and putting people in situations and what to do about that and developing a character and surprising you. If you can surprise yourself, which I believe sort of freeform writing helps you do. Oh, I, I'm, I, I, I'm not an outliner, so I'm a pantser. And, and I let my character, I have an ending that is solid, rock solid, and I know where it is. And I know what path they need to be on. Mm. But sometimes my characters take me places that I'm surprised about and that I really like, but it still has to remain on that path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I like some of the things that happen that 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 I'm surprised about, or new characters that I'll introduce to to as a something to move a plot point and find out, wait a second, this character could be really important. Mm. I it's it's like telling a story, you know, and and uh and that's that's part of what you know. If that's part of what not giving up means. It means don't let the rejection, don't let the the people telling you this isn't a good script, don't let the the you looking at scripts and uh, your scripts you've written and going, oh, well, did I really write that after you've after you've written two or three more and you go back and look at the ones we've written before? Don't give up because everybody who succeeded and took that decade to get there. Mm. Had a mindset is that I'm going to look forward and I'm not going to look back. I'm going to learn from my mistakes, but I'm going to learn from them and not dwell on them. And I'm going to not let the walls or whatever that I think are there that like, like not being able to send scripts to what I want to, and not to be able to call Kevin Feige and say, can I send you my Marvel script? That, that, that you should be able to, you need to be able to just, Learn from what what mistakes you made, not let them live in you, and and not look back at them, but look learn from them and move forward and and positively, and say I'm not going to give up. You know when 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 uh, my first film got made, my daughter, my youngest daughter, came up to me and said, "You know I'm really proud of you because you just didn't give up." And I never talked to her about that. Mm. I never discussed it. She just saw it. She said, you started writing and you just, you just, you just marketed yourself and you just learned and you networked and you did all this stuff. And I watched you do all this stuff. And I thought, wow, when is he going to get discouraged? Well, I did get discouraged. Of course, every writer gets discouraged. But I thought to myself, if I get discouraged and quit, how do I know that next week wouldn't have been the time that something happened? Somebody showed me a cartoon so, of a uh, of somebody digging digging with a pickaxe in a in a uh, in a tunnel, and the, the the picture was able to show you that there was like an inch between success and where you were because you never know. And it was like the idea. It's like he put the picture shows him putting the pickaxe in his shoulder, going, "Oh well, it wasn't going to happen." And it's like, and the caption was, "Success was waiting." And I mean, obviously, that's not guaranteed. Nobody's guaranteed it, and no one's entitled. And, and to you it. never know how you're going to get there. Mm. Uh, producer read extracurricular activity, which is like the anti-family movie. Mm. Okay. It's like as far from a family movie. And yet my first job was writing a Christmas movie. And the person who, who the producer who gave me that job read extracurricular activities and saw in it a writing voice that they really liked and said, do you think you could write a Christmas movie and not something that's as black and dark and, and bleak? as extracurricular activity and i said of course i can 
And I did, and it was a huge hit. But but the fact is, you never know what it is you've done that is going to spur on something else. If you don't, if you don't, if you quit, you'll never know that. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, on that positive note, uh, Bob Sines, screenwriter and author of That's Not The Way It Works, a no-nonsense guide to screenwriting. It just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the BritFlix podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I, I hope we can do it again. I want to do an extracurricular activity. No, no, I think, you know, the, 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 the signs are there that that would be a fun thing to do. And I think looking back on that 18-year journey of a, of a script that you in your book you describe as being your your calling card script, wasn't it, originally? Um, My calling card. Yeah. We can talk about calling card scripts because they yeah. really exist. Yeah. yeah. But but I wanted to it's it yeah, the that the the story of that script and how it got made is is like a roller coaster. Well, look, let's stay in touch and we'll make sure that happens. All right. Well, you're this was delightful. I love the five minute thing. I like the questions because I got questions I don't usually get asked. This was really great. I, I anytime. Anytime. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com.